hello. I've gone for the rogue decision of preaching from a laptop. Um, I don't own an iPad, but the last time I preached from a laptop, my laptop died. So fingers crossed um, it doesn't die. Um, so when I was preparing for this talk, um, I was thinking of a title to give it. Um, and I thought I'd come up with this brilliant title, New Year, True You. And it wasn't until I wrote it down on paper that I realized how ridiculously lame that was. So I've changed it, and it's actually going to be contemplation, freedom, and action. And I'm going to basically tell you a bit about my life, um, and I'm going to talk about how I discovered contemplation and the freedom that I experienced in that and the freedom of Christ, um, and then how, hopefully, inspire you into action in this new year, the start of this new year. So that's where we're going. So I grew up in Prague, and when I was around 10, we lived um, in a house by a forest. And my dad used to uh, take us on these bike rides. Um, and I remember this one bike ride in particular. He, he was, we were riding through the forest, and we got to this big hill. And I got to the start of this big hill, and he went up it no problem. And I was trying to cycle up this big hill, my little legs, 10-year-old boy, cycling up this hill. I reached about halfway up. And I couldn't carry on anymore. I stopped. I got off. I started walking up the hill. But my dad spun round and he came down to me and he was like, no, Benji, we're going to the bottom of the hill. and You're going to do it again. We got to the bottom of the hill and he looked at me and he said, Benji, when you're cycling up this hill, I want you to say to yourself, I can, I can, I can. I will, I will, I will. Go, 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 go. So I was like, okay. That's, my dad's a bit intense. So I was like, okay. I was like, all right. So I get on the bike, and I start cycling. I can, I can, I can. I will, I will, I will. Go, 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 go. And I make it about three quarters of the way up, and I fail. And so obviously I come back down, and I'm like, right, okay. I can, I can, I can. I will, I will, I will. Go, 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 go. And I'm cycling. My little legs are cycling all the way up, and I make it to the top. And I look back, and my dad's there punching the air in celebration. So that story is obviously, like, for a 10-year-old boy, it's a great story of grit and determination and persistence. But also, at that time, it taught me something else. And it taught me that my value was attached to my success. And my value was attached to my dad's affirmation of me at the bottom of the hill, punching the air. And fast forward uh, to when I'm 16, I've just done my GCSEs. And if GCSEs were actually important or meant anything, this would be impressive. But... I got eight A stars and A and two Bs. Thank you. Um, and um, I was so excited to tell my dad. I was like, okay, we're down in Cornwall on holiday. And I go to tell him and I say, Dad, GCSE results come, have come in. And he's like, what did you get? And I say, I got eight A stars and A and two Bs. And he turns to me and says, what did you get the two Bs in then? And now... These are just small moments. My dad probably doesn't even remember that moment. These are just small moments in our lives. But so often we're shaped by these moments, which tell us where our value lies, which tell us we need to strive and we need to succeed to be valued and to be loved. And so we go through life with this undercurrent of a motivation of how can we be impressive? You know, how can we be perceived by the people around us? Fast forward again, my first job. So I'd become a Christian, and I was, um, I was in London, and I wanted to know how to run a business. I was really interested in business. I wanted to know how to run a business as a Christian. 
So I get a job at this investment firm uh, run by this guy called Paul, um, who uh, is a brilliant businessman, and he's running this asset management business, and I want to learn from him. And they're investing into, into countries, into developing countries like Sierra Leone, and investing into business there and trying to develop the economies. Um, and what you need to know about Paul is he's basically my dad, but really, really, really Christian. <laughs> so just a quick story. Um, my work review after one year, I was preparing. I was like, how can I be better in my job? And I sit down. And I've got my notebook out. Paul sits opposite me, and I'm ready with my pen to write, you know, how can I be better in my job this year? And Paul says to me, Benji, he's from Yorkshire. So if anyone's from Yorkshire, I apologize. <laughs> Um, he said, Benji, there's only one thing you can do to improve this year. Evangelism. Evangelism? Evangelism. <laughs> and I'm like, right. And he says, you need to evangelize more. And he then says, so we're going to do a bit of role play. I'm a non-Christian and you have to convert me. Go. This is at 7.30 in the morning on a rooftop bar in London. Ridiculous. Anyway, that has nothing to do with my preach. It's just a funny story. So um, I'm working at this business, and um, I'm working for Paul. And again, I really want to impress Paul and impress the people around me. And there's this other guy there, Ben, colleague of mine. Ben, who's a bit older than me, um, and I really respected him. He was like a, a genius at maths and at financial structuring, and I really wanted to kind of emulate him and get his respect. And one day, Ben said to me, Benji, if I was your age and I wasn't married, I'd be in Sierra Leone. I'd be out there. That's where all the action is happening. I've gone a bit Yorkshire, I think. <laughs> that story's really telling me. That's where all the action's happening. And um, in that one throwaway comment, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but in one throwaway comment some, by someone you respect, it can just infiltrate your entire life. And you start to think that that's what you want to do when really it's what someone else thinks you ought to do. And around the same time, I had a similar conversation with my dad, who he's from Kenya, and he was saying, he was saying, oh, in Kenya, what works really well are these chicken restaurants, right? And I reckon that would work really well, well in Sierra Leone. So you ne next thing you know, um, I'm in front of Paul, pitching my dream of setting up a chicken shop in Sierra Leone. And I'm really selling it to him. I'm like, Paul, we have, a, we have a poultry farm. We can take the chicken from the poultry farm and create this integrated supply chain. And we've got a bank. And we can take money from the bank. And we can give people money. And they can set up their own chicken restaurants. And we can provide labor and all this. I'm really selling it to him. And he says, brilliant. Do it. So pack my bags. I'm 24. Off to Sierra Leone I go to set up a chicken shop. Now, Sierra Leone. Utter chaos. I'm there. I have to choose a site. I have to find contractors. I have to hire an architect. I have to demolish the building. I have to hire staff. Anyway, look, it sounds exciting. It, it was exciting. But in reality, I was totally alone and totally exhausted. I was working 17, 18-hour days um, and I was sick. I don't know if you've ever had this, but just like physically felt sick to my stomach with anxiety about this business and about this project. And um, I was at breaking point. And it was at this exact point, I was back in the UK for a, for a work conference that my dad asked to meet with me for lunch. And I sat down with him and I can't 
go into details, but you shared with me um, some news that was, in all honesty, devastating. Um, and I remember getting on a train and slumping into my chair, and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And at the, that point, I just felt totally and utterly alone. I was alone in my work, out in Sierra Leone, totally on my own. And now I, was, I felt this loneliness in my own family. And I just said, God, where are you in this? And this is where contemplative prayer really comes into my life. I was processing this with a friend one day. And he gave me this book called Into the Silent Land by Martin Laird. And he said to me, Benji, don't fill your loneliness with work or with shallow things, but be in the pain. Like Meet God in that lonely place. Meet God in your brokenness. And so I take this book and I'm back in Sierra Leone and I'm desperate. And so I start getting up at 5 a.m. every day and praying in silent prayer for two hours a day. And honestly, at first, it was brutal. It was so boring. (laughs) And all I could think about was work and the stresses going on and my family and all this kind of stuff. But with time and gently, I began to feel a deep peace and met with God in that place. And someone described contemplative prayer to me like this. It's like a glass with dirty water in it. And when you swill it around, it's muddy and you can't see through the water. But if you put the glass down, suddenly all this, and you leave it in stillness, all the sediment just settles to the bottom of the glass and the water becomes still and you can see straight through the water. And that was exactly what I felt it was like. All this stuff was going on in my life with my family and with the business and there was this anxiety and I just watched it all settle down as I sat there in silence And as the settlement settled, I felt this deep peace. In that place of peace, I felt God say to me, Benji, you are enough, you are loved, and you have nothing to prove. And in that stillness, I was totally transformed. From the midst of brokenness, God was giving me this freedom and this joy. And it didn't make sense. It wasn't based on my circumstance And it's hard to describe the freedom of that place, but there's a book here by Henry Nouwen. Nouwen, I actually don't know how to pronounce that, but we're going with Nouwen. Henry Nouwen, um, and he describes it like this. Instead of running away from our loneliness and trying to forget or deny it, we have to protect it and turn it into a fruitful solitude. To live a spiritual life, we must first find the courage to enter into the desert of our loneliness and to change it by gentle and persistent efforts into a garden of solitude. This requires not only courage, but also a strong faith. As hard as it is to believe that the dry, desolate desert can yield endless varieties of flowers, it is equally hard to imagine that our loneliness is hiding unknown beauty. The movement from loneliness to solitude is the movement from the restless sense to the restful spirit from the outward-reaching cravings to the inward-reaching search, and from the fearful clinging to the fearless play. And that is exactly how I felt. I felt this deep sense of restful peace, this deep breath, and this freedom and this fearless play. 
And I felt God saying to me, you know, you have nothing to prove in this place. And it totally released me into freedom. This love of God totally released me into freedom. And it's really hard to describe, but it manifested itself in a couple of ways. So it was like small things. So I don't know if like at a party or even at church sometimes, and this happens at church more often than at a party, which is worrying. But you know when you're talking to someone and um, they keep just looking over your shoulder, looking, basically looking for someone else to talk to? That, I was that guy. I would always do that. When I was talking to people, I'd just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, looking over people's shoulders. Um, and all of a sudden it was like, actually, I go to a party or go to church. I've got nothing to prove. I don't need to impress anyone. I don't need to be seen with the right people. I can just be present in that conversation. I can just listen to that person and I can recognize that they too have their own brokenness. They too need to experience that freedom of God. And Henry Nouwen talks about this as being the movement from hostility to hospitality, that actually in prayer, like we lose this idea that life is a zero-sum game, that actually life is a competition. And all of a sudden, like we recognize that we're just part of creation, that we can love the people around us. And then, you know, small things like that, but big things like my work, all of a sudden it didn't matter whether my dad or Paul or Ben thinks that building a chicken restaurant in Sierra Leone is impressive. I'm free to be like who God has made me to be, to do what he's put on my heart, whether that's impressive to other people or not. And that was the freedom I was experiencing. And the reality is, if I hadn't reached that breaking point, it would have been easy for me to just race through life like I was before, living for the perception of others. Working, 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 striving, 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 but for what? And I would encourage you, don't do what I did. Don't wait until you're at breaking point to start asking these questions, to enter that place of stillness and to experience the freedom of the love of God. And when we look at scripture, we realize and we look at the life of Jesus and his ministry and his stories that he told, we can see that the kingdom of God is consistently characterized by freedom. But Here's the thing. It's almost always freedom followed by action. Okay, so we've got contemplation, freedom, and action. And so we look at stories like Bartimaeus, who was a blind beggar sitting on the side of the, ro- side of the road. And he was calling out for Jesus. Jesus was walking past with, I don't know what, you, like a posse? I don't know what you would call that, a bunch of people. He was walking past, and Bartimaeus was crying out. And he was saying, Jesus, son of David, and everyone was telling him to be quiet. And notice, like everyone's telling him to be quiet. He doesn't care about the perception of everyone else around him. And he's crying out, and Jesus beckons him over. And it says in Scripture that he throws off his cloak, and there's that freedom. He runs to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Again, it's freedom. And what happens is action. So it says in Scripture that he then walks and followed Jesus along the road. And so you've got the freedom, and then he acts. What about Zacchaeus? So Zacchaeus, the tax collector who was overcharging everyone, and no one really liked him, and Jesus was walking through his town with his posse, and um, he climbed the tree and to get a glimpse of Jesus, and Jesus turns to him and he says, Zacchaeus, come down the tree. And so Zacchaeus comes down the tree, and again, it's like everyone's murmuring. Again, it's the perception of other people is at play. And he spends this time with Jesus, and he experiences this freedom with Jesus. And what happens? Action. He says, okay, I'm going to repay everyone that I've overcharged, double, triple what I, what I charged them. And Jesus actually says, like, salvation has reached this house today. 
What about the parable of the man with the hidden treasure? So Jesus says the kingdom of the God is like a man who finds hidden treasure. And in the Bible, it says he jumps up in joy and runs to his village. Again, it's like freedom. And what happens? Action. He sells all his stuff to buy the field. Or Peter in the boat, when Jesus is in the boat with him, he says, throw your net on the other side. And he throws his net on the other side and he, he, they pull this huge haul of fish up. And at that point, Peter bursts into tears. He says, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, have no fear. From now on, you'll be a fisher of men. Again, Jesus is releasing him into freedom. And what does Peter do? action. He starts following Jesus. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. He leaves the fish behind. Like this huge haul of fish, that's money he's leaving behind. But it's because he's like taking action towards the deeper things. So Jesus calls us into freedom, but it should be followed by action to then act and do in that freedom. So we've got contemplation and freedom and action. The question is, like, what action? What are we supposed to do with our freedom? And for this, we turn to the Jesuits. And for the past year, I've been meeting with a spiritual director, a lady called Suzanne. She's Swedish and tiny, but brilliant. Um, And she's been taking me through spiritual exercises, which is basically a year-long journey of prayer. Um, And I've been doing about an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening. Um, And the Jesuits were basically part of the Catholic Church, they're kind of monks. They're basically an order of monks started in the 1500s. Um, and they're known as contemplatives in action. And I think they combined contemplation and freedom with actually practicalities of action and outworking that freedom. What do we actually do with this freedom? And they've got some really, really helpful concepts. And one which has helped me think specifically about what to do is this concept of consolation and desolation. And so... The Jesuits say we glorify God when we step into consolation and out of desolation. So what is consolation? We basically say it's this closeness to God. It's those moments where you feel depth. It's those moments where you feel goodness and life. You know, it can be something like your vocation. So you might come alive if you're teaching kids at school and you feel that sense of like, this is what I was born to do. And you get that electricity. You know, when you're doing something, you're just like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Or it can be something small like sitting on a bench and the sunshine hits your face and you feel that everything is right in the world. Like, I'm in the right place. I don't know if you ever had that sense, just that sense of like, I'm in the right place. And they talk about consolation as this idea of holy longings and these moments of depth and clarity that signal who God has made you to be. And there's a difference here between deep desires from God and shallow wants influenced by the world. So you've got consolation, those things of like, oh, this is what I think I'm called to do, those things where you feel like you're coming alive. And on the other hand, you've got desolation, which is basically the opposite, right? It's like when you feel distant from God, when you're doing something and you just know that it's not what you're meant to do, or you know you're doing it for the wrong reasons. That's desolation. And discerning between consolation and desolation is really, really hard. But it's really important when we tr- when trying to decide what to do. It's easy to convince ourselves of something. So think about me in the chicken restaurant in Sierra Leone. Like I was there and I convinced myself that that is what I wanted to do and that that was the right thing to do with my life. And I was fooling myself and I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. And it really, it took real brokenness to force me to stop and in stillness to let the sediment settle 
and recognize that really I was just doing it to impress the people around me. It requires stillness and solitude and brutal honesty to recognize what brings you alive because God put it there and not what you are persuading yourself brings you alive because really it would just be impressive to other people. And so what about you? Where is your consolation? You know, maybe you're brilliant with numbers and you just love doing numbers. I don't know if that's a phrase, but you just love it. And you just are a mathematician and you want to be an investment banker and it just brings you alive and you feel close to God when you do it. Then brilliant. Go and be an investment banker and glorify God in that if it brings you alive. Or maybe you are an investment banker and really you're working in, in, in the bank and you just feel this sense of desolation, like this isn't where I'm meant to be. And actually what brings you alive and where you feel that sense of consolation is teaching kids or working with the homeless or painting or pottery. Whatever it is, the Jesuits would say that you should be indifferent to whether it is impressive to others or not. Whether it's impressive or whether it pays a lot, none of that matters. You should be totally indifferent to those things. Instead, you should operate in the freedom of Christ and only be motivated by what leads you closer to consolation and closer to glorifying God. And so when you're making decisions like that, it's like, okay, how can I actually practically be indifferent to all of those things that distract me? And how can I just focus on what draws me closer to God? God has set us free to run in freedom and joy towards consolation towards the things that bring life and life to those around us and the things that glorify him. And so what could 2022 look like for you? It's the start of the year and everyone's setting goals and making these huge decisions about their life. And it would be so easy to just rush through the year, striving and driving and living for the wrong things. But I would ask you, what if you just took some time to stop to meet with God in that place of stillness and freedom and ask yourself, what is really on my heart? Where is that consolation for me? And what is God calling me to? And in that place of stillness, I really believe you're going to meet with God and that you'll find the freedom and the courage to step out into those things. So it's a lot of concepts, a lot of ideas, and often, like, you can leave a sermon or a talk and think, like, oh, my goodness, head is spinning. What do I actually do, right? Um, Pete, I'm looking at you now. I'm joking. <laughs> um, but here's a start. Okay, one thing you can do is just sit in the stillness. Okay, think about that glass. Okay, when you just place it and all the sediment settles, you start to see clearly. And I just encourage you just to sit with God, just put some time aside, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, if you're feeling keen. Um, don't wait for something to break you in your life to force you into stillness. You will find freedom there and you will start to recognize like what God has put on your heart and start to feel that freedom. Second thing, practical book. It's called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, and it looks lame, but it's awesome. Uh, and it's incredibly practical, okay? So there's action points and there's stuff. It talks about consolation and desolation and indifference and all this kind of stuff. It has an unbelievable chapter on decision-making and how to make good decisions. And so if you want to explore this further, buy that book. Okay, 
practicalities over. Um, really, I'll come into land with this. I knew I couldn't exactly preach without using the phrase come into land, so I had to slip it in there. <laughs> Sorry. The reality is, like, there's all these concepts, okay, coming alive and life and consolation and all this kind of stuff, and that's great. But the reality is, like, life is still really, really hard, and we still face heartbreak, and we still face failure and loneliness. And so for me right now, I've spent the last two years um, running this business, setting up this gift business, and it looks like it's, I'm going to have to shut it down. And for me, that is like brutal. You know, I've poured all this time and effort and money into this thing, and now I'm going to have to shut it down. I was speaking to a friend yesterday, and he said, Benji, call a spade a spade, you failed. (laughs) Pretty brutal. Thank you, James. (laughs) And it does. It, It feels like a failure, and I have. I've totally failed. And, I mean, 2022 has barely started, and I've already failed. I'm already exhausted. And if I'm really honest, I I don't even know what I'm going to do next. And that's the reality. Like, God doesn't, um, and following God and and, and stepping into that freedom, it doesn't save us from failure or from heartbreak or from loneliness. But the encouragement is this. We are not defined by our successes or our failure or by the... perception of the people around us and yeah it's embarrassing for me now to go to a party and someone says what do you do and I'm like oh I'm shutting down a failing business but the reality is like it really doesn't matter when things go wrong and they will go wrong we can keep coming back to that place of contemplation and intimacy with God and experiencing freedom and then getting up and going again And I was really encouraged by the parable of the sower. So in this story, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who's sowing his seeds. And he's sowing his seeds and Jesus says, some he sows on path and birds come and pick it up and eat it. Some he sows in shallow soil and they grow and they die very quickly. Some he sows in in soil with thorns and it grows up and the thorns grow up around it and it dies some into good soil and it grows up and that crop yields a hundred times, 60 times, 30 times what was sown. And I felt God say to me this in the midst of, you know, this failure and my failing business, two things. Firstly, the sower isn't overanalyzing the soil, okay? The sower isn't in analysis paralysis about where to place each tiny seed, He's just sowing freely. And that is the kingdom of God, just going for it, just trying things and sowing freely. And the second thing is that the sower isn't defined by whether the crop is a success or a failure. 80% of it is a total failure. But it doesn't matter because his identity isn't in that. The identity of it, the sower is in that he sows, that he wholeheartedly sows and does to glorify God. So we aren't bound or defined by our failures or our successes. And we're called to step into the freedom of Christ and just to wholeheartedly so. So yeah, my business has failed and I feel like a failure. And honestly, I feel alone. But I have a choice this year 
and we have a choice this year. We can try to avoid our loneliness and our failure by pursuing success and living for the perception of others. We can give in to our loneliness and our failure and not take action and live in fear. Or we can meet God in our loneliness and our failure, in that place of stillness, experience that freedom, remind ourselves that we have nothing to prove we are loved by God, and then step out and sow and try things and fail and succeed in freedom and joy. That is exciting, and that is how we are called to live in contemplation and intimacy with God, in freedom and like that we are loved by him, nothing to prove. And then in action, just sowing and trying things. So I guess the question is, how will you choose to live this year? And I want to pray for us. And there are three classic, three groups of people I want to pray for. But three groups of people. Um, you know, you might be in that place that I was in, working on that restaurant, working and driving and trying and succeeding. But actually, you know that what you're doing isn't the right thing. You have that sense of desolation. And you want to start that journey of contemplation and discovering like what it is that um, God's calling you to. The second is you might be like me on that train. And you might just be broken and lonely, and you need to meet with God in freedom and experience that freedom and joy that he brings. And the reality is sometimes this happens like in a moment, but sometimes, and for me, it took time, and it was like watching the sediment settle, and over time I began to experience that freedom, that joy, and that's okay. And the third group is if you're where I am now, and you kind of know um, of that sense of consolation and what God's calling you to, but you need the courage to step out and to do and to sow. And I think that's what this year is all about, just going for it, even if 80% fails.